His passion is to help those who aren't Jewish learn how to build bridges with our Jewish friends and neighbors. He's got some pretty creative ideas to share, so stick around for a conversation today with our guest, Justin Crone of The Kesher Project. Plus, we'll talk about all the news stories you need to know about based in the Middle East, and then we'll answer your Bible questions and share a powerful devotional. That's all ahead on the broadcast we call The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to the program. Our host is Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie is somebody who's either in Israel, getting ready to go to Israel, or just back from Israel. Hey, Charlie, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you today and our great family of Land and the Book listeners. I am too, John. And uh, in terms of your cycle, uh, we're getting ready to go to Israel again. That's uh, always a fun time. All right. Well, maybe you wonder what's the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important? And what does it mean for you? And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and it will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Uh, receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well, you heard us talk about it uh, for several weeks now, and finally, the results... Well, Turkish citizens went to the polls this past Sunday for presidential and parliamentary elections. What were the results, Charlie, and what do they mean for Turkey's future? Yeah, well, in the presidential race, no one received 50% of the vote. And so according to their constitution, the country has to hold a runoff election in one week on May 27. The two remaining candidates are the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and 74-year-old Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu the leader of the Republican People's Party. In the parliamentary elections, Erdogan's ruling coalition won 321 of the 600 seats, giving them a parliamentary majority, with the opposition party gathering 213 seats. Uh, the remaining seats were won by a few other smaller parties. Next week's round of voting will ultimately decide the future of Turkey. The fact that Erdogan's party won a majority in parliament and the fact that as president he controls much of the media would seem to give him a distinct advantage. But ultimately, the election will be won by the party that can rally its voters to turn out and vote in the greatest number. The other unknown is the Kurdish vote. In the past, they voted for Erdogan, but his action against the Kurds over the past few years have disillusioned many. Their vote could make an impact. If they were to turn out in large numbers and vote for Kaluch Darulu, then possibly he could win. Turkey is a complex and frustrating ally for the West. They're a member of NATO, but under Erdogan, the country has become increasingly autocratic with opposition figures jailed, along with reporters who dared to criticize him. The West would prefer the other candidate to win. He's a soft-spoken politician who's the antithesis of Erdogan. He's also a member, though, of the Alevi sect of Islam, which is not considered orthodox by either the majority Sunnis or by Shiites. So the question is whether his brand of inclusivism will appeal to the youth and to those who want Turkey to be a secular Muslim country aligned with the West, or whether this heterodox brand of Islam that he holds and his secular leanings will motivate the more hardline Sunni Muslims to turn out in greater numbers to support Erdogan and his program of making Turkey more Islamic and authoritarian. The one good thing, though, we should have an answer in about a week. 
After five days of fighting, Israel and the Islamic Jihad in Gaza finally agreed to a ceasefire. How did each side fare in the fighting? Well, one pundit put it this way. Israel achieved its goals in the first few seconds, but then had to wait for five days for the fighting to end. Now, that's a bit oversimplified, but it's not too far from wrong. In the first few seconds of the operation, Israel killed three top Islamic Jihad commanders in three simultaneous strikes at three different locations in the Gaza Strip. It actually caused Islamic Jihad to delay responding for several hours, likely while they tried to determine who was even in charge to issue commands. During the five days of fighting, Israel also eliminated several other Islamic Jihad commanders and attacked hundreds of missile launch sites, storage sites, and production facilities. Now, Islamic Jihad wasn't dealt a fatal blow, but they did experience a significant setback. On the other side of the equation, Islamic Jihad was able to fire nearly 1,500 rockets at Israel. Now, of those, 1,100 actually crossed the Gaza border. Uh, 291 fell inside Gaza. 391 of the rockets fell in the Mediterranean, and 437 were actually heading toward populated areas in Israel, and Israel shot those down. Uh, The casualties were disproportionately in Israel's favor. Israel suffered two fatalities, an 80-year-old woman and a Palestinian from the Gaza Strip who was working legally on an Israeli farm next to the border. The Palestinians reported 33 killed, including six Islamic Jihad commanders, a number of their soldiers, and at least three civilians killed by Islamic Jihad rockets that fell back into Gaza. The real question now is how long the ceasefire will last. It seems a brief but intense period of rockets and bombs takes place about every two years. And sadly, until Hamas and Islamic Jihad are willing to recognize Israel's right to exist as a nation, the cycle of violence is likely to continue. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, lifelong student of Israel. I'm John Geiger. Here's story three. It's a question, how did Israel's missile defense shield work in this latest conflict? We've been talking about the fighting with Islamic Jihad in Gaza. And what about the laser system they said they'd be developing? When will this so-called iron beam actually be operational? And what impact could it have on future conflicts? Yeah, well, Israel's missile system that's now in place was about 91% effective, they determined. Uh, The system's designed to track all mortars, rockets, and missiles fired from Gaza, and then within a matter of milliseconds, determine which are headed toward inhabited areas and which are heading toward open ground. Uh, Those heading toward build-up areas are then intercepted by these missiles, while the others are allowed to land in open areas. At least twice during the five days, the system suffered a glitch. The first time it failed to hit a missile that ended up damaging a structure, and the second time it allowed a missile to hit an apartment where an elderly woman was killed. Uh, For the first time, the second level of Israel's defensive shield, called David's Sling, was also activated. This system shot down two longer-range missiles fired toward the central coastal area of Israel. Now, that's all positive news, though there is a downside financially. Each of those interceptor missiles costs tens of thousands of dollars, so this is an expensive system to operate. While Islamic Jihad was estimated to have about 6,000 missiles in its arsenal, Hamas has at least four times that many, and Hezbollah is estimated to have over 100,000. It would be difficult, probably impossible, for Israel to have enough missiles on hand to completely contain a concerted attack from those groups. And that's where the iron beam system could become a game changer. Israel hopes to have the laser system operational in a year. 
The goal will be to position a system along Israel's border with Gaza and Lebanon. Uh, The laser would detect, track, and destroy objects almost immediately after launch, before they're even able to enter Israel. And because the only operational cost is the electricity to power the laser, the cost per shot, they estimate, is just a few dollars, probably less than the cost to make the rockets the terrorists are firing. Uh, Let's hope this system does become operational, John. It it could potentially make the use of the current stockpile of rockets and mortars obsolete. And frankly, that would be a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, Israel celebrated Jerusalem Day this past week. What exactly is Jerusalem Day, and were there any problems? Well, Jerusalem Day marks the day Israeli forces entered the old city of Jerusalem during the 1967 Six-Day War and reunified the city under Israeli control. Now, that event took place on June 7, 1967, on our calendar, but it was the 28th day of the month ER on the Hebrew calendar, and that's the day it continues to be celebrated. So this year's Jerusalem Day began Thursday afternoon with the flag march that wound its way through the streets of downtown Jerusalem, including the old city, and ended up at the Western Wall. And like most years, this parade was not without its controversy and conflict. Those living in the Muslim quarter opposed the march through their section of the old city. The march is also opposed by left-wing politicians and by the Arab parties in the Knesset. At the same time, those on the far right have tried to use the march to push their political agenda. This year, they asked for permission to march across the Temple Mount with the flags, something that would definitely have inflamed Muslims. I suspect the vast majority of Israelis, both Jewish and Arab, are happy the day is over. It's not that there's anything wrong with celebrating the reunification of the city, but the extremists on both sides always seem to turn this time of celebration into a time of confrontation. Well, coming up on The Land of the Book, a conversation with Justin Crone. How do we build bridges into the lives of our Jewish friends? Charlie, what about your devotional later on today? Where are we going? Uh, We're going to be looking at the book of Jeremiah and talking about the importance of friends, especially Jeremiah and Baruch. All right. If you've not been to our website lately, we encourage you to check out everything that's there. You'll find us at thelandandthebook.org. Justin Crone is next on The Land and the Book. His passion is to help those of us who aren't Jewish to learn more about Jewish culture and how we can build bridges with our Jewish friends and neighbors. He's pursued some rather creative ideas along the way, and he's here to share some of those with us. Welcome to segment two of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I want you to meet Justin Crone. Actually, you may already have met him through a previous interview or maybe one of our many conversations about sharing your faith with a Jewish friend. Thanks for coming into the studio today, Justin. Hey, John. Great to be back with you. For anybody new to Justin Crone, he's the founding director of the Kesher Project. For nearly 25 years, Justin has brought his experiences and insights to churches and groups of all sizes and and backgrounds to help them get better acquainted with Jesus in his Jewish context and to apply the wisdom of the Bible to their everyday lives. Now, since 2009, he has pioneered something I think that's very cool. It's called the Kesher Forum. It's an interdenominational gathering for those who are interested in learning more about Jewish culture and building bridges with their Jewish friends and neighbors. 
I've attended several of these. Dan Anderson, our producer, has been to even more. And we are together amazed at the way, Justin, uh, non-believing Jews regularly attend and respectfully listen to Christian perspectives. I think that's because Justin is a true missionary at heart. He loves Jesus and loves people, and it just comes through. He's also an adjunct professor for the Jewish Studies Department at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Justin and his wife, Judy, have three children. We are privileged to work with his wife, Judy, here at Moody Radio. So during uh, Lenten season, our church was privileged to have Justin come to our church and share a Seder with us, and I'm still getting comments about his visit. That said, let's talk about the Kesher Forum for just a bit. What does that name mean, and why do you call it Kesher Forum? Yeah, so Kesher is the Hebrew word for connection. And our focus is on helping Christians, followers of Jesus, connect with the Jewish roots or the Jewish foundations of the Christian faith, and in connecting or building bridges with their Jewish friends and neighbors. And so you mentioned the forum. That's a a monthly gathering that we host here in Chicago where people can come and just learn about those things, uh, learn about Jesus and his Jewish context, learn more about the Hebrew scriptures and their relationship to the New Testament, learn more about, as you mentioned, Jewish culture. And when we say Jewish culture, well, we can look at Jewish culture of today, so what's going on in the Jewish community today, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we can also look at Jewish culture back in the first century. So if we want to better understand Jesus, it's very helpful for us to understand him in his first century Jewish context. And so that description kind of gives the umbrella for the various speakers and topics um, that we'll explore at the forum. Well, you frequently teach in churches on some very relevant topics. Let's spend a minute or two on the top three. First, the history of Christian anti-Semitism. What's going on today in America and the world at large? But Christian anti-Semitism, I, I don't like those two words uh, mixed together. Yeah, mixed together. Unfortunately, throughout history, Christians have been involved in hostility towards the Jewish people based on what I would say is bad theology, oftentimes, looking at the church as replacing the Jewish people, Mm -hmm. and then therefore, because the church is the new Israel, and God's done with the old Israel, and we tend, the church has tended to look at the Jewish people as rejected by God. And when you start to view the Jewish people through that lens, oftentimes your behavior will follow. Yes. And so we address that subject oftentimes. And Christian anti-Semitism today is coming back, uh, unfortunately, through, I would say, how we view the state of Israel and whether or not we actually believe that God intends to bring Jewish people back to the land and to support its right to exist. Our guest today on The Land and the Book is Justin Crone of the Kesher Project. Among many other hats he wears, Justin is also an adjunct professor for the Jewish Studies Department right here at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Well, you don't shy away from tough topics, and one of those is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What do we need to know as of today? Yeah, as of today, the the conflict is still obviously continuing, right? It's uh it's a conflict that's been going on officially, I guess you could say, since 1948 when Israel was reestablished as a as a state. And uh, sadly, the Arab nations surrounding it, as well as the Arabs uh, living within that territory, rejected that and then waged war against it. And when we look at the conflict today, some people you know, want to ask, well, well, what's causing the conflict now? Well, it's really, it's the same thing that caused it 
back in 1948. It's just the existence of the state of Israel. And for many Arabs, they can't accept the existence of a Jewish state on land, on territory that had once been controlled by Muslims. That's a theological belief Mm -hmm. to make it simple. It's the theology of sacred space. Once something has been consecrated to Allah or to the Islamic faith, it's forever to be under their control. So when the United Nations voted in favor of a Jewish state in that territory, many Arabs, particularly the Muslims, rejected that decision. And that's the conflict that continues to this day, and it, and it, it expresses itself in various ways. All right, let me ask you this, uh, and I'm going to put you in a difficult spot here. You know, there's this conversation about a two-state solution. You know, if you had to guess, is it disingenuine when we hear some from the Palestinian side saying, yes, yes, this is what we want? When so often you hear we're gonna we're gonna shove the Jewish people into the into the Mediterranean, really and truly there is a significant number of people who would never be satisfied until the nation of Israel simply ceased to exist. That said, how realistic, how genuine is the conversation from a Palestinian perspective with regard to a two-state solution? So I would say that uh, for the majority of Palestinians, they do not again accept the existence of a Jewish state on any square inch of that land. And so when they talk about peace with Israel, when they talk about the occupation and ending the occupation, in their mind, the occupation is not just what exists within the Palestinian territories of the West Bank, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. For them, they see the entire land as occupied. And so when you speak with a Palestinian, ask them, well, what do you mean by occupation? Uh, Do you mean just, for example, like I said, the West Bank, or are you talking about, say, the territory where uh, Tiberias is located up in the Galilee or Tel Aviv? And sadly, when you push things a little bit further in conversation, you find out that they see the whole thing as occupied and that when they talk about ending the occupation, It's about eradicating the existence of the Jewish state. Another passion of yours is demonstrating the love of God to the Jewish community. What are some insights here that many of us might overlook? Yeah, when it comes to Jewish people, I think it's very important for us to understand that Jewish people really enjoy being Jewish. There's a lot of pride in their culture and in their history. And so they will view any attempts by Christians to communicate to them who Jesus is or to communicate the gospel to them as an affront to their Jewish identity, as something anti-Jewish, because the Christian faith, unfortunately, for several centuries, uh, really, you know, the last 1800 years or so, has presented the Christian faith in a very un-Jewish way, disconnecting itself Mm -hmm. in many ways Mm -hmm. from its Jewish roots and, and foundation. And so for them, they don't see Christianity as resonating at all with who they are as Jews. And so the challenge for us then is how do we better present who Jesus is as who he was Mm. as a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth to our Jewish friends and neighbors? Thanks to his parents, Justin Crone grew up with one foot in the Jewish world and one foot in the Christian world. 
those experiences, coupled with his own spiritual journey, have led him to a deep appreciation for the beauty and connections between both faith traditions and the value of building bridges of understanding between both communities. He joins us today on The Land and the Book. In May of 2021, in partnership with the Philos Project, he released an award-winning documentary film that he co-created and produced with Todd Moorhead called Hope in the Holy Land, delving beneath the surface of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We were privileged to attend a screening at a very prestigious Chicago-area theater. For anybody who hasn't seen it, what's this film all about? So this film is about helping people understand what's actually going on, Um, what is going on between Israel and the Palestinian people. Why does the conflict exist? What does each side think about the other? What is the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, BDS? And is that something that's helping Palestinians or is it hurting Palestinians? Really just kind of asking questions that many people have about the conflict, including what's the issue with settlements? What's going on there in in the West Bank with Jewish communities that are being built in that territory? And then, you know, helping people then make kind of their own conclusion regarding what is going on. Yeah, it's key what you just said, because it's not like some narrator comes on and said, this then is the bottom line truth. You actually have the nerve, take the risk to share both perspectives. They're all out there in all of their mostly unedited glory. I mean, and, and there are strong statements made from both sides. Yeah, there, there really are. And, and some of what we learned was quite startling. And I think it's important for people to actually hear from Palestinians and Israelis themselves what they think about what's going on, rather than through necessarily the, the media. Yes. And so I think it's very helpful if people see it. Uh, the response has been really fantastic. It won the Gold Crown Award which like in the Christian film industry, that's like winning the Golden Globe. Mm. Uh, So we've been incredibly encouraged by the response it's received. And uh, I would encourage anyone listening to check it out. Well, how do they check it out? How can they see this film for themselves? Yeah, it's uh, available on most uh, streaming platforms, uh, Prime Video and YouTube and Apple TV. So uh, you can look that up on your streaming service or you can just go to our website. Uh, The film website is uh, very simple, Hope in the Holy Land. Dot com, and then we have all the various streaming services uh, listed there. Yeah. All right. Speak to a Jewish listener who has joined us today totally by accident, or so they believe. They don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. Walk them through in two minutes, Justin, what it means to know Yeshua Jesus and, and why they should trust him. Yeah. God promised from ages past in observing, right, that his people— the Jewish people, had turned against him, that they had turned from his ways. And God is a God who loves. God is a redeemer Mm -hmm. who saves. And God promised that he would bring a king, a, a Messiah, who would not only lead his people into righteousness, but would die as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. If you want that lamb, the lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world, as Jesus' Jewish cousin called him, then Jesus is, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through him. I would say there is nothing more Jewish than embracing and following Jesus. 
because Jesus truly is our Messiah and our King. Justin, what's a prayer? Walk us through a prayer that somebody could pray right now. No magic in your words or my words, but how could they pray to receive Jesus as Messiah? It's as simple as acknowledging that we are sinners who have fallen far short of God's glory. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to save yourself. Just as it was completely and entirely impossible for the Israelites to save themselves from the bondage of Egyptian slavery, Mm -hmm. so too is it completely and entirely impossible for us to save ourselves from the bondage of the slavery of sin. But the scriptures tell us, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. All you need to do is to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, and you will be forgiven. Wow. How can we pray for the Kesher Project, Justin? I would ask uh, people to pray about just how they can get more involved, more engaged. You know, one of our favorite things that we do every Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is we encourage our followers to send a greeting card or to send a gift of some kind to their Jewish friends and neighbors to show that they are loved and appreciated for who they are. Go to our website. You can sign up for our updates and you can get information about how to do that. We'll remind you uh, when is the time to do that. I'm going to do this. You do it, John. I'd like those reminders. We love the feedback that our followers have received from their Jewish friends about how grateful they are to be remembered at certain times of the year. Hey, join me, won't you? Let's sign up for that uh, reminder. Let's get involved. Let's not be satisfied with talking about these things. Let's be doers of the word, not hearers only. Justin, I'd love to hang out more. We'll have to do it again. I'd love to. Thank you, John. Justin Crone of The Kesher Project, a link to his website at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer is next here on The Land and the Book. We sure do appreciate your company here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. This is segment two, where our host, Charlie Dyer, answers your questions about the Bible, prophecy, and the Middle East. But let's start with a question of our own. What is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is that important? What does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses that very issue. The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, we're going to kick off our Q&A segment here with one I've never thought about, and it's a familiar psalm, Psalm 23. Todd wants to know, what is the significance of having a meal in the presence of one's enemies? We hear about that in Psalm 23. Yeah, and while the first part of Psalm 23 is a picture taken right from shepherding flocks in the wilderness, I think beginning in verse 6, David shifted word pictures. He then takes us from the wilderness to the palace. I see him picturing himself as a welcome guest of God. So the table there is the banquet table of his gracious host, God's bounteous provision for the guest God has chosen to honor. Others who are present might want to harm David, but David's under the protection of his host. 
putting it in today's language, he's feasting while they're stewing in their juices because they can't harm someone under the king's direct protection. And uh, though it doesn't relate directly to it, if I can give an illustration, remember in Esther chapter six, Haman went into the presence of the king. He wanted to have permission to kill Mordecai, but God orchestrated it all. So the king just happened to be reading the royal archives, recognized uh, that a man had saved his life. Nothing had been done for him. So he says to Haman, well, what should be done for someone the king wants to honor? And Haman, thinking the king had him in mind, said, well, you should put him in royal clothing, have him ride on the king's royal horse, have a high official go in front saying, this is what the king will do to those he wants to honor. And then the king said, great, that's what we're going to do for Mordecai, and you'll be the guy leading him. Well, in one sense, that's what's happening here. It's a different image, but I think what David's saying is God's honoring him before those who otherwise want to harm him. Dave takes us to another Old Testament question. He says, we know the Lord through Jeremiah and Ezekiel gave wonderful promises that he would bring his people from exile and restore their fortunes. We know these promises will yet be fulfilled in the millennium, but do you think the book of Malachi may reflect the disillusionment that the priests and people were then having with God and his promises? Things were far from bright and beautiful compared to those wonderful promises that God had given. Yeah, I'm not sure I can say for certain the people were disillusioned that God hadn't fulfilled his promises in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, though it is at least possible. Uh, But the questions they ask in Malachi 1 do definitely express disillusionment with God. How have you loved us? How have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you? Uh, The people were being judged for many of the same things that had led the nation into captivity in the first place. Now, I do believe Malachi's purpose in writing was to point the people back to God by reminding them that God's kingdom program was still just over the horizon. Uh, Before God came to reward the righteous and judge the wicked, the people needed to examine their own lives. Uh, That's why he actually ends by pointing the nation to two of Israel's greatest prophets. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses. That's chapter four, verse four. And then he says, see, I'll send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So he's encouraging them to make changes now in light of the still-promised events that hadn't yet been fulfilled. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. It's segment three, questions and answers with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger with our next question. Takes us to the book of Esther. I know the Bible says that Haman was an Agagite. I have always heard that he was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. This listener says, uh, a recent magazine article I read quoted an individual who believes that archaeologists have uncovered an inscription which indicates that Agag was also the name of a province in the Persian Empire and that this is likely where Haman was from and why he's called an Agagite. What do you think? Robin wants to know. Yeah, and I believe the reference to Haman as the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, is almost certainly identifying him as a descendant of Agag the Amalekite though there might have been a province called Agag in the Persian Empire, well, that doesn't explain why the writer would go out of his way to connect it to Haman. Uh, However, the connection to Agag the Amalekite does have deep historical significance. And in fact, it's especially true since the writer also goes out of his way to identify Mordecai as a Benjamite. Mordecai's ancestor, Saul, failed to wipe out Agag and the Amalekites, and his failure nearly resulted in the destruction of the Jewish people. It's Saul's descendant, Mordecai, who completes the job and saves the Jewish people. Now, in addition to having this make the most sense with those details of the story, I think it also is supported historically. Josephus identified Haman. He says, by birth, he was an Amalekite. And Jewish rabbinical literature identifies Haman as the descendant of Agag the Amalekite. So the connection between Haman and Agag the Amalekite 
is ancient and it's fixed Jewish tradition. And I think it makes the best sense in the overall narrative as well. Here's a question from Alan. He says, I was reading Isaiah 57, 1, which says, The righteous perish, and no man lays it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. I'm wondering, could the last part of that verse apply to the rapture of the church? Yeah, I don't see the rapture in view in those verses because uh, I see Isaiah 57 not focused on the church age, but on Israel. And the time in question in that section of the book is looking forward both to the tribulation and then following that, the kingdom era. Now, Isaiah is saying that the tribulation will be so evil that the only place the righteous will find rest will be in death. I think a parallel passage uh, might be Revelation chapter 7 in verses 14 to 17. Uh, John sees there those who come out of the great tribulation. He says they're clothed in white robes. They're never going to experience hunger or thirst again and have all their tears wiped from their eyes. Uh, So he's actually picturing, again, tribulation saints who've been martyred. And uh, I think that's a good parallel because I think that's what Isaiah is doing in that passage. From Sharon, this question. I heard a preacher identify the death angel of Passover as Satan. Isn't God the author and completer of our lives? I know death came by sin and Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I fail to understand how God's plan of Passover incorporated Satan as his partner in this. Can you help me? Yeah, and I'm not sure how the teacher came to that conclusion. I, I suspect that what he did was identify the destroyer in Exodus 12 as Satan based on Revelation 9. You know, that passage says they have a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon. Uh, those words mean destroyer. So I assume he, is, he was assuming the destroyer in Exodus 12 must be the same angel. But I really struggled that identification. I say that because in Exodus 12, God specifically says, He's the one who will strike down the firstborn. He says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. So when Moses explains the coming event to the people, he lets them know that God's going to accomplish this uh, through someone he does call the destroyer. But then as the chapter records what actually happens, it says at midnight, the Lord struck them down. So if I put all that together, it seems like God's the one responsible for this final plague, though the destroyer employed by God could have been an angelic emissary. Now, in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. But neither Exodus nor Hebrews tells us who that destroyer is. So uh, I I feel like I'm running around the barn here, but uh, while God might have used an angel to specifically carry it out, uh, there's no suggestion that that angel was Satan. In fact, God takes responsibility himself on what happened. Questions and answers here on The Land and the Book. Gabriel asks, is there any indication of God's purpose for creating all that we know he has created, in particular, the purpose of creating man? You know, we're not told directly why God created humanity, but several thoughts do come to mind. First, we're told that much of God's plan for humanity, including our salvation, was for the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 1, Paul uses that phrase for all three members of the Trinity and connects them all to God's purpose Uh, for not just creating us, but for saving us. So one of God's purposes was to display his glory. A second possibility relates to the cosmic conflict between God and Satan. You know, after Satan's rebellion, which happened prior to the creation of humanity, uh, that's when God created humanity. So it's very possible that the creation account in Genesis 1 related to that conflict. Humanity was given a choice to believe and follow what God said or what Satan said. And that conflict doesn't end until the final chapters in the book of Revelation. And if I could add a third possibility, it's closely linked to that second one. I would say in the book of Job, we see the conflict between God and Satan 
impacting Job personally. But at the end of the book, after demanding that God show up and explain what was happening, well, God does appear and speaks to Job. But instead of answering, God asks a series of questions. And the purpose was to show Job that uh, he had no clue how the world was made or how it works. And my point here is to say at some point, we just need to admit like Job that we don't have the answers to all our questions. We simply need to trust in the God who does. Well, we love getting email from you, whether it's a question for this segment or just your thoughts about the program. It's always welcome when you write to us at the land and the book at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. And don't forget about our podcast, a perfect way to share this program with someone who doesn't live anywhere near a radio station that carries the program. The podcast is at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Boy, I'm looking forward to Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's next here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. There are so many great films out there today. One of my favorites still remains The Toy Story. Gotta love Toy Story. And of course, one of the best songs from Toy Story is You've Got a Friend in Me. <laughs> in fact, at our wedding, Charlie, uh, that was our, our daddy-daughter dance. You've Got a oh, Friend wow. in Me. And friends, though, at the center of your devotional today? Uh, friends are at the center of my devotional and a special friend with Jeremiah and Baruch. Okay, we're going to get to that after we get to this, a Holy Land experience. Somebody's thoughts on being in Israel, how it impacted their life. Check this out. My name is David Woodall. My trip to Israel has given me a different geographical perspective on the text of the Bible. You see, it's one thing to learn geography from an atlas, but it's another thing to experience the visual impact of that geography in the hills, the valleys, and the deserts of the land of the Bible. For example, as I looked over the vast desert of Judea, I connected more to the ministry of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, or to Jesus being tempted in the desert, Matthew chapter 4. Luke 10 records the parable of the Good Samaritan, which tells of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when you see that area, you get a better grasp of the potential dangers of making a trip in that region. All of this is important because the Bible describes events that happened in this geographical context. We need to live in their world before we can draw out the significance of that text for us today. And when we do that, we develop a whole new and, I think, more accurate perspective on the Bible. Well, friends are important, Charlie, and for many biblical reasons and a great example today you're taking us to, uh, Jeremiah. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, well, thank you, John. Over the years, God has blessed me with some great friends. We share a common love for the Lord and for serving Him and we also share a number of similar interests, as well as the same quirky sense of humor. I never really thought much about it until one time I was with one of these friends, and afterward my daughter said to, to my wife, Mom, how come all Dad's friends are like that? Uh, my wife laughingly tried to insist that my daughter met Goofy, but I think she really meant that all my friends simply enjoyed being around one another. We're able to laugh with and, and sometimes at each other. We can be apart for months or even years and then have all the time and distance melt away in an instant when we get back together. We're able to let our guard down and share our deepest thoughts, our joys, and our sorrows because we know the person next to us genuinely cares for us. Friends, true friends like that are a precious commodity. 
they're not the same as casual acquaintances, those occasional companions we sometimes travel with on the road of life. Solomon understood the difference. In Proverbs 18:24, he wrote, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the word he uses for friend comes from the Hebrew word ahav, which means love. It has here the idea of covenant loyalty. A true friend is someone more loyal than even your own siblings. Today, I want to explore the importance of developing true friends. And to do that, we need to travel back to Jerusalem in the years leading up to the city's destruction by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. This is actually a dark time in the city's history, with palace intrigue, religious apostasy, and a general distrust of and anger toward anyone trying to stand for God and His Word. It was a lonely time for those few true prophets of God who dared to stand in the gap and call the nation to repentance. And perhaps the loneliest of those prophets was Jeremiah. I'm reminded of my friends every time I crack open the book of Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to deliver a disturbing message in a dangerous time. He watched the nation of Judah go down the tube spiritually and physically as he tried in vain to warn them to change. But instead of listening, he was rejected even by his own family. No wonder Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And yet, tucked within his book are some important insights on friendship. You see, Jeremiah was able to keep going in part because God gifted him with a remarkable friend named Baruch. Most skip over the details of this individual who stuck to Jeremiah like glue, even as Jeremiah went through some of the most difficult times in his life. So travel back with me to Jerusalem, to explore Baruch's importance to Jeremiah in what otherwise were difficult and depressing days. Uh, Jeremiah mentions Baruch 24 times in his book in four separate chapters. Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe and secretary, but he's also pictured as Jeremiah's friend. The book of Jeremiah is laid out thematically rather than chronologically, but I want to trace the interaction between these two friends as it develops, so you'll need to follow closely. The first time we meet these two friends is in 604 B.C., 18 years before Jerusalem's final destruction. The king on the throne at the time is Jehoiakim. Jeremiah summoned Baruch, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. We learn later in the chapter that the message was one of judgment. King Jehoiakim asks in anger, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and cut off both men and animals from it? Thankfully, he didn't say this directly to Jeremiah because both Jeremiah and Baruch had already gone into hiding. But before that, after dictating the letter to Baruch, Jeremiah had Baruch hold the letter for about six months before telling him to read it publicly at the temple during a called time of national fasting. From historical sources, we know the letter was read the very month Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Ashkelon along the Mediterranean coast, a mere 40 miles from Jerusalem. As the people gathered and prayed to ask God for his deliverance, Baruch read God's already written response to their request. Judgment was coming. We know how Baruch felt in response to this message. A chapter 45 was God's direct message from Jeremiah to Baruch at the same time. Baruch was devastated by the message of impending doom. Woe to me, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm, I'm worn out with groanings and find no rest. But then God has Jeremiah offer practical words of wisdom to his devastated scribe and friend. Should you then seek great things for yourself? 
Seek them not, for I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. Baruch, don't expect to prosper materially in the time of judgment that's coming. Keep your expectations realistic, but at the same time, don't ever forget that I'll watch over you and take care of you physically, even when the judgment does fall. The last two chapters of Baruch with Jeremiah will take place 18 years later, at the time of Jerusalem's actual fall to Babylon. In chapter 32, as the final siege grinds away at Jerusalem's defenses, God has Jeremiah provide an illustration of hope. Jeremiah purchases a piece of property outside Jerusalem that had already fallen into the hands of the Babylonians. And after making the purchase, Jeremiah hands the two copies of the deed to Baruch and asks him to place them inside a clay jar so they will last a long time. Jeremiah delegates this important act to the one person he trusts implicitly, his friend Baruch. Then, following Jerusalem's fall, it looks for a few months as if peace might return to the land. However, that peace is shattered when the governor appointed by the Babylonians is slain. In panic, the people start to flee to Egypt, but they pause to ask Jeremiah what God wants them to do, and they promise to obey whatever God says. Jeremiah delivers the message. Don't be afraid. Stay in the land. Their response is dramatic. You are lying. Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians. The people sense the closeness between Jeremiah and Baruch, but they responded by charging Baruch with incitement. Sadly, the final record of both men is of their being carried away to Egypt by this unbelieving remnant. So what lessons can we take with us from the lives of these two friends in a very dark period of time? I think the key takeaway is the importance of finding and nurturing such a friendship with at least one individual to help keep us on target in tough times. Baruch demonstrated faithful obedience, even down to taking on dangerous assignments for the sake of his friend. And Jeremiah was willing to speak truthfully to his friend when Baruch experienced his own crisis of faith. The two remained so closely connected for almost two decades that the people confused Baruch's influence over Jeremiah with God's direct message to Jeremiah. Companions can come and go, but a true friend, a loyal, loving friend, will stick by you in tough times. Ask God to bring a Baruch into your life, and then work hard to build that acquaintance into a lasting bond of friendship. Thank you, Charlie. Today's devotional is something you might want to hear again. And the good news is it's easy to do that at our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. In fact, our podcast there will let you hear the entire program again or share it with a friend at thelandandthebook.org. Well, on behalf of our host, Charlie Dyer, I'm John Gager thanking you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.